0: in our practices of awakening. And to start by saying, we've had enough days now together that I know a lot of people have experienced a broad range of weather systems coming through. Isn't it true? A lot of different inner moods and sensations and so on. One yogi in an interview today said, forget the 10 top tunes. How about the 110 top tunes? You know, They've been just coming and coming. And it's a lot. And what, again, people are noticing is that it's beginning to matter less and less what particular experience is arising. And more and more what's making the difference is the quality of awareness that's brought to it. So there's a real big difference if a sensation of discomfort arises and it's met with fear and aversion than if it's met with kind attention. The quality of energy that we bring in our effort to meet any moment will determine whether our experience has tension in it, or is more open. And the Buddha's teachings around wise effort were really quite simple. He described wise effort as the effort to be present, to be fully here. And he described it in terms in the great tradition of the middle way as not too tight, not too loose. His metaphor was that of of a lute, that you want to create the perfect sound and you don't want to tighten it too much, nor do you want it to be too loose. The essence of this energy towards presence, of this wise effort, is threefold. It's relaxed open, and wakeful, that there's an alert quality. Now, when wise effort's there, we have the energy, or the juice, to wake up. So it's an important quality. Yet, as many people have noticed here, and it becomes more and more of something we are aware of even, we easily get snagged in the kind of effort that's either a striving, trying to make things a certain way, trying to have our meditation more quiet, less this. There's a tightness. Or we can lean in the other direction, which is really towards a resignation. This is the loose side, where there's a, a not caring, a lack of interest, kind of sloth and torpor, and just laying back. In a way, this can be thought of as fight or flight, that in some way we're either going at our experience are we, and grasping at it. Or aversion, pulling away, turning away. Whichever way it is, the common ingredient is a trying to control what's there and a sense of a self that's doing. This would be kind of the description of unskillful effort, when there's really a strong sense of self-doing and then there'll be either a striving, wanting mind, grasping, or aversion. This is a a quote from John O'Donohue, who's a poet and philosopher from the Celtic tradition. We manage our lives so powerfully, externally, as to forget the incredible mystery we are involved in. And we intuit that. It becomes more strong in us as we come here. And we have this aspiration to touch into the mystery, and yet we know our habit is to control to make an effort that's fear-based. So a major shift that happens as we deepen in practice is a movement from a more fear-based kind of doing, trying to control our experience, to a quality of energy that's really a letting be in a wakeful manner. In a sense, um, it's very perfect that this meditation we did this morning that Jack led and a number of people commented on it, Really, in a very uh, clear way, gives that flavor of non-doing, of resting in awareness, wakefully, open. Experience is felt. So, our tendency to control, as we've we've talked about, um, you know, in a number of talks, as long as there is a sense of a deficient self, there's going to be the kind of fears that create striving, that create doing, that make us feel like we always have to improve ourselves. I saw this. This is by some unknown person. I went to a bookstore the other day and asked the woman behind the counter where the self-help section was. She said, if I told you, it would defeat the whole purpose. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really in the culture, isn't it? Big time. So more about unwise effort, I want to talk about it because I feel like I have some expertise in this area. (laughs) Um, I was 20 years old when I joined an ashram and uh, it had a very strong sadhana or discipline. And the discipline was to get up each morning at around three and spend two and a half hours doing yoga and meditating and chanting and praying. And it was great. It was fun. Um, We started with a cold shower before we did any of that. Anyway, I had the notion that it would take me about eight to ten years to get enlightened. (laughs) And that's what I started. I just figured, well, with this kind of practice, you know, it's... And and I worked hard, you know. I worked hard to raise the energies up the chakras and to become pure and get rid of what was impure. (coughs) I even got up extra early. For a number of years, I'd got up at two instead of three, and um, because I was really, you know, my concentration was deepening, and I was going for bliss. I wanted those absorption states, you know, and I wasn't unaware of the impression that I might make on others being this fanatic yogi type. I thought it was good then. Now it's embarrassing. (laughs) In the midst, there were many moments of heart opening and senses of freedom, and I wouldn't have stayed so long. I was there for 10 years if there weren't some genuinely uh, awake feelings to it. But there was also an ongoing sense of trying to fix this very imperfect self. Now, during these years, I would periodically seek out teachers outside of the tradition I was in that seemed wise or intuitive, and (coughs) just to them and talk to them about my practice, and my basic inner question was, Well, how am I doing? You know, how's it going? How can I do better? And um, <clears throat> almost invariably, everyone said very little more than just relax. <laughs> they kept just telling me, Relax. One teacher um, told me that I should go on a zucchini fast for 40 days. <laughs> <laughs> So, I took up Buddhist meditation instead. (laughs) But as you know, even in Buddhist meditation, striving arises. unskillful effort happens. The striving, the trying to be different, is based on this belief that Buddha nature is somewhere else. And Jack talked about this a bit last night, that it's out there, that it's down the road, that it's in some other wise being from the past are that possibly, after a bunch of three-month retreats and a trip to Burma, well, maybe, you know, moi, but doubtful. There's a tale of the fabled musk deer, some of you probably know this, who spent its whole life seeking after the source of this sweet scent, whole life, this fragrance that was just so wonderful, and then it finally died, and when it died, its horn pierced its belly, And then, that released this incredibly beautiful scent. All its life, seeking outward. We forget the source. So taking refuge in Buddha nature is really in the most profound way, this returning to or realizing we're taking refuge in this awakening being, these hearts and minds that are right here. We suffer and then we strive, when we don't believe that. When in our being deep down, we don't trust that. Um, this is a cartoon, and in this cartoon, there are fleas that are wandering around in this forest of fur, and they're wondering whether there really is a dog. <laughs> So all these metaphors and references. And so it's the same idea, looking somewhere else, not um, having the habit or inclination to really trust. It's right here, within this being and this moment. We're caught in a paradox, and it's been called the big squeeze, and I really like that term. And the paradox is that we do intuit our Buddha nature. We wouldn't be here if we didn't somewhere trust trust that essence in our beings. And every day we get caught in the conditioning of grasping, the conditioning of aversion, the conditioning that really is a forgetting of who we are. And so we kind of go back and forth. Now, when our effort in practice is coming out of that conditioning, coming out of that not trusting, coming out of the grasping, coming out of the fear, then what it does is it reinforces the sense of the small, deficient self who's making the effort. When, on the other hand, our effort arises out of that intuition and longing to be fully who we are, that's called wise effort. And it guides us back home. So what I'd like to do is take a closer look now at what these qualities of wise effort are, these qualities of being wakeful, open, relaxed, and how they're cultivated in our practice and how they're necessary for our practice both. And I'd like to start by reading a poem. This is David White, and it's called Tolocho Lake. In this high place, it is as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of rough love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There in the cold light reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. Leave everything you know behind. Say the old prayer. Open both arms, and see what is true. So that could be the end of this Dharma talk. (laughs) I'll elaborate a little bit. Um, But I think it's a beautiful expression of, or points very beautifully to kind of some essential grounds in our practice that we've been doing here together. To leave everything you know behind to let go of the clinging, to see what we're holding and let go, to open our hearts so there's room for what's there, to open our arms and really be fully with our experience. So the first one, don't know mind, coming into the moment fresh, really not carrying all the preconceptions that it's our habit to live inside. I'd like to talk about it more by emphasizing some how we release this incredible identification with thoughts, because we live in them so much, as you're noticing more and more. We're finding that we can't be receptive, open, wakeful in this moment, if our mind is in the shape of a thought form, if our life's getting filtered through thoughts. There's a um, kind of well-known now story kind of a Zen story, whereby a college professor goes to meet with some wise Zen teacher, and in, in the tradition, the teacher says, no, first tea. And so the, the professor's holding out his cup, and the, the Zen master pours tea, but he keeps pouring and pouring, and the tea goes all over and splashes on the guy's legs, and so on, and he's really angry. What's going on? And the Zen master simply said, first, you must empty your mind. There's no room for teaching your mind is too full. And it's true. We cannot touch what's true if we have ideas and notions about what's going on. It's like the finger that's pointing to the moon is not the moon, and yet we're believing the finger, our thoughts. And it keeps us one step removed. Now, thoughts are necessary, thoughts are important, and they're also can be inaccurate, they can be misleading couple days ago I read you um, something, uh, kind of a listing of errors from children, and this is another version, a little different. These are signs that were our bulletins in churches in uh, Europe, and these were signs that were written in English in these churches. <coughs> Don't let worry kill you, let the church help. <laughs> <laughs> Remember in prayer the many who are sick Of our church and community. (laughs) Thursday there will be a meeting of the Little Mothers Club. All wishing to become little mothers, please see the minister in his study. (laughs) This being Easter Sunday, we ask Mrs. Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. (laughs) At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be What is Hell? come early and listen to our choir practice. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a useful process not to always believe thought forms our own, what others present, but rather to feel more immediately into the living reality. And this really, each day, in each of the foundations of mindfulness, it's about coming back to that, to come out of our ideas of whatever, and come just to touch the life of the moment. Just to invite you for a moment, if you will, to reflect. And you can close your eyes while you do this. And bring to mind all the ideas you have about your body. All the ideas, too fat, too thin, out of shape, easily tired, painful, sickly, attractive, whatever it is. And then now just take a breath and then feel your body from within. Sit down into your body, feeling the body from within, to feel the breath inside the breath, the actuality of sensations, and you come back when you'd like. The practice with thoughts, quite simply, is to recognize they're happening, open and include what's real, rest in what's real. Thoughts themselves are not the problem. It's that when we believe them, live inside their shape, they control our life, they make it small. So the more that we identify with the world of thoughts and stories and judgments, the farther we get from reality, from each other, from ourselves. I'd like to give you one more story about what happens when caught in our world of thoughts and ideas about how things should be. This is a story that Jewel Graham wrote about her grandmother, who was inhibited and embarrassed about the human bodily functions. And she had these ideas of how it should be. GM, Grandmom, was a genteel lady. Sometime after the turn of the century, she was to go camping at a campground, first time, unprepared. After much thought, she decided to inquire about the accommodations. Of particular concern was the sanitary facilities adequacy. She wrote the campground operator inquiring about bathroom facilities. This was too crass. She changed the letter to inquire about the water closet, which she thought was a bathroom closet. Still, dissatisfied with being too direct, she asked about the availability of a BC during her stay at the campgrounds. The campground operator was not quite so genteel. He puzzled over what the good lady could mean and decided that she was a good Baptist and wanted to know about the proximity of a Baptist church. (laughs) He wrote back, I have your recent letter concerning your coming stay at our campgrounds. We do indeed have an accessible BC and my wife and I will be glad to accompany you to it (laughs) on your first visit. (laughs) You will be particularly pleased by how friendly the people are around here. (laughs) They will probably line up to meet you when you first go to the BC. (laughs) And best of all, you will be impressed by the recent improvements. It now has plush-lined seats. (laughs) So confusion, misunderstanding, and a real separation from what's real when we get lost in thoughts. When I was here, um, it was last year at the three-month retreat, Joseph at one point said that when I think there is a problem, I decide there isn't one. (laughs) That was it. And I like that. And I also realized, boy, that's hard. Because when we believe in something, when we're invested in it, it's hard to just say, not so. Our body's involved. Our conditioning's really deep to identify. So it's a very central part of our practice, to learn to wake up out of thoughts in a full way, not just a superficial recognition, but a real full way, open out of the identification. The metaphor that's most useful for me is that our awareness is an ocean. These thoughts are waves, and that in a moment of recognizing a wave fully, we become that ocean again. We reconnect to a sense of wholeness. So one quality of wise effort, this wakefulness, knowing the thoughts are happening, and in that recognition, in that knowing, becoming the awareness that knows. Now we can bring an unskillful effort to this, to being mindful of thoughts, that out of fear of our thoughts, we can, and out of aversion, try to push them away. We can judge them, we can dismiss them. And then all we're left with is another wave of contraction, aversion, pushing away energy. That's what we brought to our thoughts. So how we meet the thoughts, the quality of awareness or effort, is really important. Wise efforts not to hold up some ideal about being thought-free. Nor is it about grasping onto the thought, noticing it superficially, and sinking back into it. Rather, it's as full a recognition as possible is to see clearly as much as possible. And in that, what is skillful is to see thinking and then relax open. We relax because we relax the grip holding on to the thought. We relax our heart, the contraction that's generating it. We relax into what is. That's the second quality. So there's wakefulness and then the full experiencing of what is. Now, often, this is the most challenging juncture in our practice. The reason we stay so lost in thoughts is that there's something we don't want to open to. There's something that we don't want to feel, especially when the thoughts are kind of coming out of the most core beliefs of what's not okay about our being. It's very hard to drop into the body and open to the fullness of that not okay feeling. We sit because we have spent our whole life running from from our experience. To open fully into what is real means including our body where the intensity pain lives. So this is Joko Beck. She writes, We have to face the pain we have been running from. In fact, we need to learn to rest in it and let its searing power transform us. When we truly rest in this bodily sensation, there's a knowing, an exact resonating in the body. And then finally, there is a spaciousness and peace in which we see ourselves and our actions in a new light. So an essential part of wise effort, of this effort to be present, is very specifically the effort to be present in our body in a receptive, wakeful, relaxed way to be there, in our body. And most people I know that are doing this practice have spent a good deal of time working with this training to kind of sit down in these bodies and be with what's there, to learn to cry, to learn to feel, sometimes with the help of therapy, sometimes not. It's hard to get around it. It said the only way through is through. And it's true. Now, the most deep and concealed veil that we have to direct experiencing is, and to becoming the experience really is the idea under all ideas, which is that there's a self there that experience is happening to. There's a self that's trying to do the effort. There's a self that's experiencing the feelings. This is the bottom line veil or barrier to a very direct, vivid, open being with our lives. As we awaken in the most radical way, we awaken because we begin to recognize this. We begin to sense this kind of phantom self hanging around and be more and more wakeful in relationship to that. begin to actually it's just another appearance, but it's got a gritty sense. There's realness to the feeling. We wouldn't even when we mentally go, oh yeah, there's that sense of self, there's still a lingering feeling that our identity is is, identif- is caught in, is identified with, that needs to be felt. So paying close attention to this subtle sense of self is part of what frees us. If we turn the mind on Who is looking? Who is feeling? In an interested way. When we ask that question, who's listening to this talk? Who's feeling this fear? Who's thinking these thoughts? Not in an analytic way, but really looking. This is part of being wakeful. This is part of wise effort. The effort to be here fully. As long as that sense of self is still there, we're not free to fully be with our experience. So what happens when we look? Who's really listening right now? What we discover is no one, no thing, but rather a flow of experience, of changing experience. Just as as many of you noticed this morning when there was that kind of open sense, it's just happening. Not to a self, it's just happening. Sounds are heard, feelings are felt. The breath is felt. This really describes the the most wise energy bringing in the practice of being with the breath. The breath is felt. We don't have to run after it. I think one of the pitfalls in early attempts at concentration is that the effort's got a strain to it, so we feel like we're controlling the breath, we're pressing into the breath as we open more and more in a receptive way, as the energy of our effort is more open and relaxed, the breath is experienced, it's just happening. So our wise effort has these parts. It's the wakeful recognition and releasing of what we're holding on to. And it's the opening in a full way to feeling just what's there. The part of what we discover when we're feeling just what's there is that the very nature of our effort of what is going on in our meditation is strained. And I find that more and more as the retreat deepens, this awareness of unskillful effort rises to the fore because we're getting more mindful we're more aware of when there's a strain. And our practice when that happens, to sense the intention behind it. If we feel we're making a, a tense kind of effort in, in practice to sense the fear or the grasping that's under it, and then bring wise attention to that. again and again. <coughs> again, from Tolocho Lake. In this high place, it is as simple as this: Leave everything you know behind, step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of rough love. As we've talked about in other nights, it's really the openness of our hearts, our sense of connectedness, that makes it even possible to connect with our experience. It would feel like too much otherwise. The basic practices of this path the, one of the grounds of this path is in the cultivation, the intentional awakening of the heart. Now, with metta, with compassion practices, it's possible to do these with unwise effort. It's possible to do metta, as many of you know, in a way to kind of push away experience. Something hurts or doesn't feel good, okay, and just start running the phrases through, or to cover over in some way. But when this happens, again, we just... Look at the intention. Bring a kind heart to the intention behind that. Start fresh in that moment. It's said that through our lives we are either in love, we're either living it, or longing for love. That that's our nature. We're either feeling it, or in some way longing for it. of course that longing can get contracted by fear and grasping. But underneath the fear and grasping, at the essence of our nature is this love and longing for love. And that feeling the sincerity of that longing, feeling the sincerity of our aspiration to love, to commune, is really very basic to reconnect to the source, to feel the longing for love reconnects us to love. O'Donohue again, If you succeed in awakening longing and inhabiting it, then you come fully into divine presence. I like that phrase, inhabiting longing. It's not a grasping, it's a resting fully in what is. It's feeling our hearts fully, which is really what happens in prayer, in metta, in compassion, that whatever particular style we're doing, it has the effect of allowing us to feel more fully our own hearts. This is Rumi. In times of sudden danger, most people call out, Oh my God! Why would they keep doing this if it didn't help? (laughs) Only a fool keeps going back where nothing happens. The whole world lives within a safeguarding fish in waves, birds held in the sky. All exist, are held in the divine. Nothing is ever alone for a single moment. All giving comes from there, no matter who you think you put your open hand out toward. It's that which gives. So it's part of our practice to do this. Sometimes the question comes up, isn't this dualistic? Isn't there then a self and an other? And it is. And it, and, it is a, and it is a doing, in a sense. But it's a wise doing, in that, in the very nature of feeling our heart's longing and reaching out, we come from our heart and reconnect with the boundless heart, which is really our nature. This is um, really represented beautifully in the story of the Buddha's awakening. And it's kind of a continuation of the part of the story that Jack told last night, whereby the Buddha spent the whole night under the Bodhi tree, and Mara came again and again, and Buddha met the attacks with compassion and wisdom, awakening through it. And in the morning he was fairly free, but not fully what happened at that point, when Mara had not fully retreated, was the Buddha put his hand on the ground and he called on the Earth Goddess, Mother Earth, to bear witness. He reached out. And it was at that point that Mara fully retreated and the Buddha was fully awakened. And what I love about that story, or that piece of the story or myth of the Buddha, is that it makes it quite clear that the Buddha was not a self working real hard through the night to enlighten himself. It wasn't a self-doing. But rather, the Buddha, through realization of interdependence, of connectedness, called on the web of life, entrusted himself to the whole of life. And that's wise effort. It's that relaxing into what is. It's not a striving. Wise effort undoes, undoes the doings. It has the quality of energy that is intentional and purposeful, but it does not reinforce a doing self. Do you understand that that shift happens that as we begin to pay more and more attention, the shift from doing kind of effort to simply the effort to be receptive, wakeful, and relaxed. I love the way Joko Beck describes it. And it's kind of that we're all like ice cubes, and we have these edges. And with the light of awareness and the warmth of awareness, we start melting. And we're all just here melting. And, and the more one person melts, another person melts. So it's really kind of co-melting. <laughs> That's what we're all here doing. We're just kind of melting together. Anyway, she describes it that the more we melt, the more room we have for experience. The more room we have for the fullness of our heart's experience, for the joys, for the sorrows, for the whole natural mysterious flow of life. This is opening our arms. We melt, we open to be with whatever arises. And the more that we are available, the more we see our own nature and see Buddha nature everywhere. This is a story by Eduardo Galeno. He writes, The Uruguayan political prisoners may not talk without permission, or whistle, smile, sing, walk fast, or greet other prisoners, nor may they make or receive drawings of pregnant women, couples, butterflies, stars, or birds. One day, Didaco Perez, a school teacher tortured and jailed for having ideological ideas, is visited by his daughter Malay, age five. She brings him a drawing of birds. The guards destroy it at the entrance of the jail. On the following Sunday, Malay brings him a drawing of trees trees are not forbidden and the drawing gets through Didako praises her work and asks about the colored circles scattered in the te- treetops many small circles half hidden among the branches are they oranges? what fruit is it? the child puts her finger to her mouth shh, and she whispers in his ear Selly, don't you see their eyes? they're the eyes of the birds that I've smuggled in for you When we approach our moments with this wise kind of energy, the moments become indescribably rich with our own nature. It's all there in each moment. We're not seeking enlightenment. It's said that pure awareness, the pure light, is one half-breath away So rather, we're seeking to let go of the barriers, let go of that which distances us from our own hearts, that stops us from really loving fully, living fully. So we practice. We practice wakefully seeing, Okay, what's happening? And in that seeing, letting go. We practice relaxing and opening to what is, opening our hearts, making room for this life. Because it's our conditioning to continuously recontract, you probably noticed, you can have a day where there's all sorts of spaciousness and joy, and then, bam, who knows what happened? You weren't even aware of a story going through, but there's tightness and tension and grumpiness. we continually recontract. And what it means is we have to keep wakefully re-relaxing. It's a very skillful means through the day, through the sitting, just to re-relax the body, to soften the belly again. Stephen Levine so beautifully, I mean, he's given us the the word soft belly, I think, to this culture, describes how we resist our life and just simply by softening in the belly, we begin to open to the life we pushed away. So to re-relax is wise effort. especially when it comes to opening to this body of fear sometimes it can be very very intense and we can have an opening and a catharsis and think well that's it I've worked that one through and then we realize not so it takes many 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 rounds it's a lifetime's work to, to open in this way Rumi describes it that it's like we're night travelers who search the darkness instead of running from it a companionship of people willing to know their own fear. So it's meeting our edge again and again, having the willingness, (coughs) the interest, and the care to open to it, to soften to it. It's been described that our journey into the present is not one of going up a mountain, transcending sufferings, transcending our experience, but rather sitting down into... I'm reading you from Pema Chodron. She says that we move toward the turbulence and doubt, we jump into it, we slide into it, we move toward it however we can. We move down and down and down, right down there in the thick of things. We discover the love that will not die, the awakened heart, bodhicitta. The very thing we long for This awakening is available in any moment that we're willing to be fully here. In any moment that we connect with our experience with that wakeful and relaxed quality of attention, we become that awareness. We become that awareness that is boundless, that is filled with compassion, that is our Buddha nature. So I'll end with that, and, and we'll just for a few moments sit, if you will, to come up right. Taking some moments as you sit to, as we did this morning, open the awareness. Open to sounds. Just listen. Resting in an open awareness wakeful relaxation receiving whatever arises with a kind heart fully here Our freedom comes not from straining effort but is already present in open relaxation and letting go.